Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yep, welcome listeners uh, to our latest induction. It's been a long time coming into the hallowed failed critics corridor of praise. I'm James Diamond. I'm joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. And I'm joined by Jerry McCauley. Hello. Hey. And uh, we're here. We're going to celebrate and discuss the work of the first studio to gain admission to this elusive club. Uh, elusive? Uh, exclusive. That's far better description of it. <laughs> Although it's quite elusive for some people. It is yeah. quite elusive as well. That's a very good point. Uh, over the last 28 years, they have produced 18 feature films, one television movie, introduced children and families across the globe to the joy of world cinema. They've broken box office records at home and abroad, picked up international awards, including one Oscar, and turned grown men like me into a blubbering mess. It's quite fitting that just a few weeks after Hayao Miyazaki renounced his retirement from, retirement from filmmaking, that we tonight welcome Studio Ghibli into our corridor of praise. Hey! Um, Jerry, I think it's fair to say you've been probably their chief advocate on this podcast ever since the beginning. I think there's very a second episode you chose Grave of the Fireflies for, our, for a triple bill. Um, can you just give us a brief idea of what drew you to their work in the first place? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we've spoken before about how uh, the IMDb Top 250 challenge has been sort of something that a few of us have, have had a bit of a mm-hmm. crack at from time to time. Um, and there was there was a surprising number of, of these films on the list. Um, so basically, I, was, I you know, I'd heard bits, I'd you know, been on film for the odd time, I'd never really got around to watching them. So I thought, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the effort, I'm gonna record. Uh, you know, Grave of the Fireflies, I think it was, it was the first one I saw, and it was on, uh, I'll give it a watch, and I ended up watching it, and it just absolutely blew me away, um, I mean, it's a, it's a stunning film, absolutely fantastic bit of filmmaking, and um, I think I watched that, and then shortly afterwards, uh, My Neighbor Totoro was on as well, so I watched that, um, which was, I didn't realise at the time, but they came, kind of came out as a double bill, uh, those yeah. two films initially, Um a year before I was born. Um, <laughs> you young bastard. Yeah. And that, the kind of combination is that they're very different films, but they're very similar as well, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get onto later. Yes. But that kind of drew me in and sort of the two sides to that world and the possibilities to it. And, and I'm a massive Pixar fan, uh, mm. more Pixar than, than Disney. And I think that we will probably talk about the similarities between all three of the studios really in terms of being the most successful animation studios um, in cinema um, 
and mm-hmm. there's some very similar things going on with Ghibli. But Ghibli is again, it's, it seems more adult, but then there's there's something wonderful about it as well. Something so childlike about all their films, um, and a lot of that's down to Miyazaki and Takahata. They have a brilliant skill, uh, and it's just so lovingly made and drawn and it really drew me in and the stories I mean I'm not a big buff of Japanese culture or anything like that but the stories always drew me in and and there's ways of of understanding and more universal themes that you know make up the fact that you will miss out on some of this stuff I'm sure there's loads of stuff I don't pick up on but they're just fantastic and they they, some of them are brutally horribly sad like Grave of the Fireflies yet strangely uplifting at the same time and My Name of Totoro is possibly the happiest, just the most uplifting, happy film ever, anyone's ever made. It's wonderful. Yeah. Although, uh, yeah. earlier today, Owen shared a link uh, with us on Twitter. We retweeted it on thing, which is certainly an alternative take on on Totoro. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll, we'll put a link to that in, in the blurb for the podcast here as well. You can go back and look at the Fail Critics timeline. But it, yeah, we'll come on to that. Because, well, talking about how... Studio Ghibli formed. They formed after the success of uh, a film called Nausicaa, uh, Valley of the Wind, which was the first major collaboration between Miyazaki and, as you said, Takahata, and also producer Toshio Suzuki. Now, Castle in the Sky was the first release. Have either of you seen Castle in the Sky? I haven't. No, it's one no, of the no. one of the gaps. No, no. Um, and. To be honest, I think let's just jump straight into that. You've already mentioned it. Their first major impact in the cinematic world, double bill release of My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies. Um, Owen, your thoughts on these two? Firstly, as a double bill, Mm -hmm. um, but also kind of how they set that standard for, you know, they really laid down a marker for Ghibli. They did, yeah. I mean, they were both made by Ghibli. Um, It's worth pointing out they were made by freelance um, animators as well. People that mm. were just hired in different studios even. Miyazaki it was kind just, of released through the studio name, wasn't exactly, it? Exactly, but it was yeah. it was a project that um, Miyazaki and Suzuki actually worked on to get both films out and made at the same time. Um, it's a really interesting story to it as well. If, it's worth... Um, if you've got like the... Because the Studio Ghibli DVDs, um, there's a series um, where they, they're all part of the same series... Um, there's a, an extra on the Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind DVD, which goes into detail actually about all of their releases up to um, Howl's Moving Castle, which is really interesting. It gives a really interesting insight, particularly into these two films, and um, just the sheer effort that had to be expended in getting these two out at the same time. Um, because apparently they wanted to make a post-war Japanese story, um, and the distributors were just saying, no, you can't do that. So they said, well, we'll make, we want to make Grave of the Fireflies. We'll make My Neighbor Totoro as well, which is also a post-Japanese story, uh, post-Japanese, uh, mm. post-war Japanese story, but with a slightly more uplifting <laughs> take on, on, mm. on the whole thing. So the, the project became like this, this double um, feature, really. Uh, which is really interesting, but the, the the films themselves couldn't be more different. I don't think one is really. Uh, I, I wouldn't say Grave of the Fireflies is a more realistic um, interpretation, but only because I think that Ghibli, um, Ghibli tried to make uh, My Neighbor Totoro into this kind of fantasy story. 
which is actually from that article that you mentioned um, that I found earlier today. Yeah. It's it's kind of like a pan's labyrinth story almost. Yeah. You know, these kids that, yeah. that are escaping through um, fantasy and, you know, these, these weird creatures that they come across. And three creatures actually that become really big, important figures for Ghibli. You know, you've got yeah. the cat bus, which is quite iconic for them. Um, yeah. The dust bunnies. I'm desperate to get hold of a cat bus. <laughs> yeah. Like, a toy. I'm desperate for one. It's amazing. And uh, yeah, the dust bunnies. You know, when they're all running yeah. around the house and shouting into the rooms to scare them off and stuff. They're really popular and feature in other films as well. I think they're in Spirited Away. Um, and you've also got obviously Totoro and his two little drums. Who, uh, you know, that's that's the image that most people hold now of. Of Studio Ghibli, it's on the blue screen that comes up at the start of all their films. It's just a draw. He's their, he's their lucky mascot. He's their mascot, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah I, I had the great fortune to actually, to go and see this as a double bill very recently. In the way that it was originally screened, I, I got to take my daughter along. My daughter, who's not yet three, to, along to see Totoro, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. She'd already seen it before. Terrible etiquette in the cinema. She just kept shouting out bits that were coming out <laughs> up and stuff like that. Really bad. Yeah, I, feel, yeah uh, I did feel a little bit, oh no, no, don't tell them that Totoro's coming. Other kids might not know about that. But uh, yeah, I didn't really care, to be honest. It's my daughter. I was taking her to see a hipster world language, <laughs> <laughs> world cinema film. Um, and yeah, and I, I, I think Totoro is an absolutely wonderful story. It, it looks beautiful. And the, for me, some of the important thing is the animation doesn't just look beautiful, which it does. Uh, and there's you know still a lot of hand-drawn animation going on there. Um, it's actually some of the framing, some of the shots are properly directed. You know, there's mm. some beautiful... You could take just random screenshots from that film and they would just be beautiful cinematic images. And that's something I think that does run through uh, their work. But Grave of the Fireflies, just, wow, what, what an emotional punch in the guts that film is. Absolutely. And and just utterly bizarre to see those two films at the same time. But when you see them put directly up against each other, you do start to see those um, similarities mm. about uh, you know loss of innocence, um, young people trying to hide away from the horrors of the real world, be that the, the end of the Second World War, or a mum potentially dying, you know, they withdraw into their own worlds, which have their own kind of dangers, and um, both absolutely wonderful films, Uh, and it's no wonder that the studio suddenly got a lot of interest in it, followed it up the next year with Ghibli's first real box office triumph, which was Kiki's Delivery Service. Um, Have either of you two seen Kiki's? I've not actually managed to quite get round to it. Um, I yeah. may it's have done. I just ago, might not remember. Oh well. <laughs> well it was um, it was uh, Japan's highest-grossing film the year it came out. So it was the first real big one. Now, again, uh, really kind of capitalising on that fantasy idea. And I think Jerry was talking earlier about not necessarily being a uh, a buff on all things Japanese, but there is definitely uh, there's a wonderful. There's a wonderful feeling I get from Japanese films, and I get it from Japanese horror films as well, and that they are, um, they have this real spiritual, almost superstitious quality, despite on the, on the surface being quite a forward, progressive, westernised in a way, 
um, culture as well. And it's just this culture clash between progression and trying to hold on to the past and magic and things like that. There is a a sense in all their films, and you know, I'm not going to make a sweeping generalisation. This is a you know an innately Japanese thing, but it's definitely something that comes through all the time. Is that there is this the magical world and the fantastical are very very close to normal reality and they you know mm. what they look at is the interplay between that and this as you say the spiritual side of things and i know it, it, it kind of goes back to um you know japanese spiritual beliefs around nature and things but there, there's mm. a real interaction and, and that being just bubbling under the surface and just you know coming out that you don't get a lot in in a western viewpoint you know no. it's not a common thing and i think that's yeah again i think that's why japanese horror films work so well and have that very unique viewpoint. And I think that you get that with, with Ghibli films. Now, the following period after Kiki's Delivery Service really set Ghibli on the map, um, at least domestically, with Only Yesterday, uh, Porco Rosso, Pompoco, and Whisper of the Heart all following Kiki's success in becoming the highest grossing domestically in each of the years they were released. Now, Owen, you've already spoken on another podcast about how Whisper of the Heart is your favourite Ghibli film to date. Mm-hmm. Um, Briefly, can you just tell us, what is it about this film that you love so much? Because I'll be honest, it's one of the ones that hadn't really come into my sphere. Uh, sure. it's, it, you know, it's, not up, it's not one of the ones which is in the IMDb Top 250. It's not one of the kind of Pixar distributed ones. So what is it about this film that really you know, caught your imagination? Um, well, I think it's, it's probably because it's quite different to a lot of the... Um, well, I say it's quite different. Ghibli seem to have one of two styles with their films. You either get the really... Um, Jerry's already talked about the sort of fantastical element to it, you know, these big fantasy stories with lots of magic and weird creatures and things in it. And they, then you also get the films which are quite sort of nostalgic and based around um, usually young girls and, and in their childhood or as they're just becoming um, adults and aware of, of things around them and stuff like that. Whisper of the Heart is just this story of a 14-year-old girl who um, she doesn't really know what she's going to do with her life. She sort of flirts around with doing... Um, she likes reading, so she she thinks maybe she could become a writer. She likes writing stupid, goofy lyrics to songs to show her friends and stuff, so she's, you know, she does a bit of singing in it. So she's just at that point in her life, which I think captures... It's, it's the point where everybody has been, I think, where you're... Whether you know whether you're 14 and yourself at the time when it happened to you, or whether you, you were a bit older or younger even, where you just think, what do I want to do with my life? And then it goes on this journey um, of Shizuki and or Shizuku, sorry, as she um, discovers herself really, and it, it's just so so sweet and so romanticised vision of like childhood, and I just I fell in love with it. I thought it was an incredible. Um, film really and i love that kind of whimsical nostalgic feel to the films like that so like my only yesterday i thought was brilliant as well i really liked only yesterday and Mm. i prefer those kind of things more to um like nausicaa which was Mm. quite a big well it's what i would think of like a typical um anime kind of story to nausicaa Mm -hmm. and even the earlier stuff that that uh, miyazaki did like um the castle of cagliostro Mm. which is just a kind of general anime story of you know a hero and he saves a girl and stuff yeah. like that um interestingly i mean i've not seen the film i've not i've not seen uh, whisper of the heart but it was the only film that was directed by 
guy called, oh, sorry for my pronunciation, Yoshifumi Kondo, mm-hmm. um, who was supposed to be the successor to Miyazaki and Takahata. Um, and this was his first directed film. He was the uh, the animation director for Kiki's, uh, for Only Yesterday, for Princess Mononoke, I'm sure for other things as well. Um, and he unfortunately died very suddenly of an aneurysm, um, which they put down to working excessively, basically. Wow. Um, and, and one of the things you need to say about this, this studio is that they, they work absolutely insanely hard. I mean, Miyazaki is, is in his 70s and he's saying, you know, I, I'm, I, he's retiring because he, he can't do 12 to 14 hour days anymore. And he, he, I can't do it. He'd, he'd quite like to have Saturdays off. I mean, this is what, what these <laughs> yeah, people are wow. like. They, they go balls to the wall and that's, I mean, it shows in the work. Mm. But, um, Kondo died from this, and I think it was excess work. So the first time that Miyazaki retired, he's retired several times, um, but I think it was the first time was he, he announced it after that because he thought that, yeah, I can see that happening to me. I don't want that at all. You know, yeah. he'd seen someone he worked with closely and who he thought was going to be, you know, his replacement die from overwork. So, yeah, pretty sad. That is, but. That is a sad. That's quite a shame as well because he's obviously talented. It's it's such an incredible film. Really, like yeah. Whisper of the Heart is by far my favourite. By far, uh, he, I mean he was the artistic director um, on Mononoke, and he, he he did a lot of the character design for that, which you know I'm sure we'll, we'll cover now. But mm. you know the character design in Mononoke is absolutely unreal. Mm. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Right, coming on to that. Yeah, after. After that kind of burst of films, uh, in 1996, Ghibli agreed a deal with Disney to distribute their films to a worldwide audience, and so their work was opened up to a new international uh, fan base. Uh, first film of this deal was 1997's P- Princess Mononoke, and brilliantly, uh, Ghibli insisted on a no-cuts deal uh, after the American edit of Nausicaa was heavily cut for an international audience. And I don't quite know how he was involved, but somehow Harvey Weinstein uh, was involved in the discussions about uh, Mononoke's marketing in America. He suggested it have some cuts and some edits to make it more palatable for American audience. And the studio sent him a genuine Japanese sword simply inscribed with two words, no cuts, which I thought was <laughs> <laughs> kind of nice and a threat. I think it was Miyazaki <laughs> himself who did that, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think it was. And yeah, I admire that. Yeah, one of the few people to just stand up to Harvey Weinstein yeah, in fair to him. ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, what I will say is uh, Mononoke isn't, it's not my favourite of the Ghibli works. I felt it was a little bit overlong in places. And actually, there were some things... We were talking earlier about the Japanese culture, the themes. Um, I, I think this is one of those films where p- perhaps a little too much of it on my first viewing went over my head. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on it? I, I, think I, I loved it. Mm. Go on. Yeah. I was just going to say, I didn't, I didn't love it either. I'm pre- I'm feel the same way James does about it, I think. But I thought it's probably their best looking film. I think in terms of animation, stuff about, you know, the the, the forest thing, the um, uh, the sort of avatar of the forest, I forgot what it's called, you know. Mm. But that is just, it, that just looks incredible. I mean, that's one of the, the most amazing creatures they've created in terms of the way it looks anyway. Yeah. Stunning. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's kind of visually, it just blows you away. And I think mm. that comes through in a lot of their work as well. Um, but it, it was, it's, it's a period piece, isn't it, really? Let's be honest. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a sort of medieval Japanese 
period drama. Um, yeah. it's, it's pretty crazy, but it's it's very much a criticism, like a lot of their work is, to be honest. Um, it's very much a criticism of, of sort of modern industrialism yeah. um, and, you know, supporting nature. And, you know, that comes through yeah. in Spirited Away. It comes through in uh, Howl's Moving Castle. It, it's yeah. a common theme for them, but yeah. this is just a, well, a brilliant I'll, way of showing it, to be honest. I what I quite like is they've got that steampunk kind of feel through a lot yeah. of them. So when technology does encroach, it's this fantastical steampunk style technology and it's only in their really kind of rooted in realism films that you get something approaching kind of normal modern technology and I, d- I do like that and it, it does seem to be uh, a bit of a, a theme running through their films um my i think one of the problems with mononoke for me as well is i watched the dubbed version of that because uh, that was the one that i ended up recording and i do feel again it lost a little bit in translation. And I've heard that the direct subtitled translation does actually give you a little bit more of what's going on. So maybe there was an issue there. It, should I be watching all of these films where possible subtitled? Yeah, Cause there, for me, there is a difference. Usually for animation, you don't... You, it's not like when a film is dubbed and you just, it just really throws you because the voices don't match the lips and stuff like that. With animation, you can blur that a little bit and get away with that, but... Um, yeah, is the voice act, is the Japanese voice acting actually something that brings something else to the play, and I should be striving to listen to it in in its original language? I think so. I mean, I've I've watched um, a couple of the films multiple times, once in each, and, and there's definitely the you know the, the subtitle version is a bit meatier, it's a bit better, you know. Yeah. Although they do get some great voice actors in for it. Yeah. You know, they've got some. Oh really yeah, don't get me wrong. That. Yeah. Yeah. There's you know, Christian Bale in Hell's and all that stuff. Yeah. Although Christian Bale in Hell's Moving Castle did do a little bit of a Batman voice he at did. one point. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, um, but it also in Hell's Moving Castle, uh, Billy Crystal mm. as Calcifer mm. was a really lovely bit of, and in fact that I think is where you get a bit of the um, the Pixar influence, isn't it? Yeah. You get yeah. some of the great Pixar voice talent. So at least they are trying with the voice talent, but still, yeah. I'll, uh, what I do, I did see Grave of the Fireflies in its original Japanese language format, and I do that. Mm. I think made it even more powerful because yeah. you are listening to a young Japanese girl and a young Japanese boy, and you hear the inflections and the emotions. Yeah. Because um, there has been a little tendency because a, a lot of the um, a lot of the films obviously feature young people and the american tendency with the uh the dub is to sometimes get kind of disney young disney's like uh one of the jonas brothers for example and uh, dakota fanning and people dakota like fanning and, and her younger sister in toto and obviously dakota fanning actually very good actress um but a few of the other ones that they seem to have picked up on are just like young famous people and it I think it yeah. definitely loses something there. Although, um, um, you know, Whisper of the Heart that I keep going on about, yeah. I saw that with, it was dubbed, and I thought that was, you know, still incredible. I mean, I don't know how it would compare, because a lot of, some yeah. part of Whisper of the Heart as well is about sort of the music, so some of it doesn't really need to be mm-hmm. in subtitles. Yeah. But, you know, with other things that, um, you know, Toast Row is one that you, you've just mentioned, I think that works a lot better in subtitles. 
So yeah, you know. okay, that's interesting because I've pretty mu- I've seen the subtitled version once and I've seen the dubbed version about fifty times because <laughs> my daughter liked it, and she'd throw an absolute tantrum if words started appearing along the bottom. Well, I'm sure, she'd... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. Now, after Mononoke came uh, my neighbours, the Yamadas. Mm-hmm. Um, have either of you seen that? Yeah, got it recorded. I haven't watched it yet. One of the la- it's one of the last ones until next year. That uh, it's the last one that Takahata uh, directed. Owen, what what's what's it like? It's like a sketch show almost about this family. <laughs> yeah, it's just a series of like funny sketches. Um, it's got the odd one that's kind of sentimental and stuff, but it's just about this this family who. Um, uh, it, I, I suppose the closest thing to it resembles is like The Simpsons. Really, it's okay. just a small family of. Um, two kids, two adults, and a grandma, and they all live in this house and get up to different things, and it's funny. Some of the well, some of the sketches are really, really good, and um, the animation in it is completely different to any of the other Ghibli films. I mean, it all looks like um, uh, it's just all it all looks like it's on just a flick book, you know, just bits of paper, and just <laughs> it's really cute and oh, yeah, okay. quite funny. Okay, oh, that's interesting. Um, then in 2001 came, I think, the international breakthrough for the studio in the shape of Spirited Away. Tale of a young girl who gets trapped in the spirit world with her parents having been turned into pigs. Uh, it won the Oscar for Best Animated Film in 2003. And it is the first film ever to earn over $200 million in box office before its US opening. Mm. Uh, absolutely huge in Japan. Uh, obviously, but then became quite a, a worldwide hit. Although it did have a troubled distribution from Disney, um, they barely marketed it at all. Uh, and apparently, a lot of people said that Disney straight-to-video films get more coverage than this did uh, for its cinematic release, uh, for its theatrical release. And apparently, this was seen as a response to Ghibli's insistence that they retain merchandising rights for all of their characters. Um, on a more positive note, Pixar's John Lasseter is apparently. Huge fan of this, huge fan of Miyazaki, and he instructed his staff to watch Miyazaki Ghibli films whenever they come up against a story problem, uh, which I thought, you know, again, it's that link between Pixar, Disney, and Ghibli. Is the people at the top recognise that um, there's some fantastic storytelling going on there. So Spirited Away, I'll be honest, Spirited Away is one of my absolute favourites. I know it's a really obvious favourite in the sense that it's probably... They're, they're they're most commercially successful, certainly outside of Japan. But it it took a little while to get going for me. I thought it was an odd setup to a story, but once it once it did, I, I loved the world it created. Little touches of humour around, you know. There's a very odd sense of humour running throughout this film. The the idea that there's this this bathhouse for the spirits, you know, when it gets to night, they go to a bathhouse. Um, crazy witch living at the top and um it's it just full of lovely little vignettes and the story itself you know of that young girl struggling a, a corruptible adult world struggling to find her own identity i i fell in love with this film i i love spirit away and i think you're right that the world that it creates you know the the, the bathhouse when it first is revealed at night time and all the spirits start coming out and there's all these crazy creatures and it's you just mm-hmm. It's in really, really engrossing and fascinating viewing. You know, yeah. you can't watch that and not just think, "Wow, uh, this is this is fucking great. This is interesting." 
Yeah, and well, just the imagination there. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Owen's the I man. Was keeping that quiet. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> but much. yeah, yeah, I know. I'll, I'll let you two duke this one out. Well, I think the thing that just before Owen has his little say here, I think the thing that I love about Spirited Away is, you know, you said the opening is a bit strange. I actually love the fact that there's this. There was a re- it really took me back to my childhood, and I think this is something that that they do so well, and it's a similar thing that Pixar do as well. Is there was a sense when you were a kid that you know you, there was these things that you you read about or you heard about these fantastical things like ghosts and that they were just around the corner you know just behind that that little dark uh, wooded area or whatever that, that might be lurking and and the idea that they just they stop off and take this you know a bit of a wrong turn or whatever mm. and they go and explore this little thing and it's the idea that you just stumble upon this entire magical fantastical world that's it's just so amazing and that is kind of you know you go through your childhood thinking that. You know, there's amazing, incredible things just around the corner, just lurking out of sight, just that you can't quite touch. And it, it's that whole feeling and that sensation. They just encapsulate that brilliantly and put it on the screen. And it's it's just, ah, it's a wonderful film. I don't know how Owen is going to possibly try and take it down. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you, Owen. Um, well, you know, I think that's, they're all fair points that you're making, but they didn't... They weren't there for me, really, when I watched it. The first time I saw it was, um, uh, well, a bit of background. My wife's dad is from Hong Kong. My father-in-law's from Hong Kong. He, I think it was whenever this came out on DVD, sort of 2002 or whatever it was, he goes back home for Christmas. He brought it, these pile of DVDs back with him and says, watch Spirited Away, um, because it's a really big film over there at the minute. We put it on DVD. My wife, who's into animation and stuff anyway, she she loved it. She thought it was amazing. I just sat there a bit bored, thinking it was a bit like a Japanese Disney film, and I wasn't that impressed by it. But at the same time, it's one of those films that I've rewatched it quite a few times since. Um, and every time, I've just thought it's there's just something about the sort of the magical side of Ghibli films that doesn't really appeal to me. I just think sometimes they just go out the way to be a bit strange and a bit weird. Um, and Spirited Away is full of things that are just strange and a bit weird. Um, and I think the, yeah. the story that ties all the strange and weird bits together, it doesn't... I don't, I don't like the character in it, the girl. She... I just <laughs> I don't... coming out now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like it. I think this, the, this, the animation in it, again, it is just mind-blowing. You just think that the, the amount of blood, sweat and tears that have been spent into animating stuff like the dragon, which looks incredible, and the flying bits of paper and stuff, and you just think, okay, a lot of love has gone into this, and I can appreciate it, but it's not. Re- it didn't really connect with me on an emotional level, and I, it's been the same way for, for Princess Mononoke did the same, but I was a bit more, mm. bit more blown away by the animation in that one. And I Speaking just think, of, of the love, by the way, is um, the only best animated film Oscar winner to be traditionally animated. Mm. Well, oh, oh. I know it's only it's a fairly young award. You know, it was kind of yeah. invented for Shrek, wasn't it? Then yeah. Monsters Inc. But <laughs> um, you know, in terms of how animation is done now, it's all mm. you know, barring the sort of the exceptions of things like. Um, Fantastic Mr. Fox and Corpse Bride and yeah. mm. Wallace and Gromit, it's very much computer generated. Mm. Yeah. And the fact that they create this amazing, even Owen's admitting it, they create this amazing visual thing without recourse to the modern sort of ways of doing things. You know, yeah. I mean, they use the digital process, don't get me wrong, but mm. it, 
it was, you know, a traditional animation in, in that sense. Yeah. It yeah. just gives you RSI watching it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the hours they put into yeah. that film. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then for the rest of that decade, uh, Ghibli continued to produce critically acclaimed, commercially successful animations. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle, for example, I, I watched for the first time the other night. And, again, that, that sense of building a world, just this utterly incredible and imaginative world full of really lovely touches. Uh, you know, a house where you just switch the doors and it takes you to different doors. And, you know, it, I, I really, really enjoyed Howl's Moving Castle. Owen kind of gave me a heads up mm. and said that he liked it until the last half hour. I loved it until the last half hour. The last 20 minutes or so did kind of go over my head a little bit, and I wasn't quite sure what was going on there. Um, yeah, I think it's one Jerry. of the weaker films, actually, and it's it's very okay. popular, but I, yeah, it's it's good, it's all right, but I think, you know, it's kind of... The best, the best thing I can compare it to is it's a bit like Brave or The Incredibles, in that mm. it's mm. good. And if anybody else did it, you'd probably be like, wow. But because, it, because of their other standards, it's it's just all right. Yeah. Well, you did oh, pick okay. two of my favourite Pixar's there. But, um... <laughs> well. You're the odd I'm one, though. Apparently yeah. the odd one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Ponyo, uh, which is a kind of almost, well, not quite, but it seemed to me like their take on The Little Mermaid. Uh, Ponyo was a lovely film, actually. Did you watch the um, English dub? Uh, I did watch the English dub, unfortunately. I really did not get on with the English dub of Ponyo with Liam Neeson. Uh, okay. Yeah, the Liam Neeson thing was a little bit... It just made me think of Taken immediately. Mm. At one point, his kid's gone, and I'm like... Yeah. And in my head, immediately, I started thinking, yeah, he's got a certain skill set. Um, <laughs> he, will, he will find you and he will kill you. And then, yeah, for, it, for about 20 minutes after that, I had to try and get back into the idea that it wasn't yeah. Taken... The Little Mermaid years, or something like that. So yeah, the because it really is, it's an odd voice for his that just the way his character looks and everything like that. It's a, it's a bizarre casting choice yeah. in a sense, and it felt a little bit odd. Uh, but again, it looks fantastic. It's a lovely, sweet story as well. I think. Uh, I mean, I, I know I always rave about it, but I think this is Ponyo is kind of emblematic of the fact that they're on a bit of a decline, a bit like Pixar. Mm. it's good it's not great same with Howl's Moving Castle I know Howl's Moving Castle is very very popular but you know we'll move on to Arietti as well they're, they're good films without ever reaching the heights that they did sort of in that that period from Grave of the Fireflies up to Spirited yeah, Away yeah. that was kind of their peak well let's, let's pick up on Arietti then because uh, I know Owen's seen that I've not got around to seeing it and I'll be honest just the fact that it's a Japanese retelling of The Borrower's I'm not in a huge rush to see it. Is that is that wise? Yeah, I mean, um, again, it, it does look good uh, without ever being spectacular. So even your, you know, films that I've mentioned that um, I thought looked good but didn't have a great story. Ariette is just a very simple story, very simply told with you know, good but not brilliant animation in it. Uh, it's a yeah. shame, really, because there's, there's the option um, at points where you think, OK, so this is the bit where it's just going to blow you away with something special. And it just, I mean, it fizzles out in the end to nothing. It's a shame. Yeah, they do some great stuff with scale, um, you know, visually. Mm. But I think it's kind of, 
it's more of a slow burner of a film, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's not a you know a great in the way that Spirited Away or Mononoke give you that sort of instant gratification of the stunningness as well as the story. Mm. It's a bit more of a. I, I don't think it matched it quite quite no. what they needed to do, but it's all right. It's an odd film for them to have done as well, I think. Yeah, it's a strange it's just, choice. It doesn't fit in their, you know, catalogue. It's not like, um, like I said went before, with it's not a nostalgic story. It's not mm. a, this magical fantasy story. It's not even like a vanity project like Porco Rosso was. It's just mm. this this retelling of a classic Western story. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, you said that's, it's a Western story. Uh, and How's Moving Castle was based on a novel by an English author as well. And maybe this sense that they've started taking non-Japanese source material uh, has diluted a little bit of what was, you know, their mm. charm um, and, and what made them stand out. And hopefully um, the the direction they've taken in the last few years is rectifying that slightly because the latest Ghibli film to be released um, certainly over here in terms of uh, being subtitled and dubbed for an English language audience was from up on Poppy Hill which I went to see earlier this year uh, directed by Miyazaki's son Goro Um, and this is it's definitely in Owen's sphere Mm -hmm. of uh, films. It's set in the run-up to the Tokyo Olympics, um, so we're just a little bit past post-war Japan now, uh, and it's a Japan which is struggling for identity. That is part of it wants to hold on to its traditional past, part of it is really progressive, and everything is, that is new and shiny is better. Uh, and it's um, based around a, a young girl uh, and a boy at school who decide to try and keep their ramshackle clubhouse open. Um, And it's a clubhouse full of scientists and archaeologists. And it's all these um, students uh, who are studying a load of extracurricular activities. And there's an acting group there. They've got this ramshackle uh, house, and it's due to be knocked down to make way for um, preparations for the Tokyo Olympics. And it's quite a... It's quite a cliched story in the sense that it's a group of kids banding together to keep their youth club open, essentially. Mm. But it's a it's a really nice story about this young girl who um, has lost her father uh, at sea, um, struggling. Again, this is this seems to you know parental death mm. is a theme that runs through a lot of uh, this. You know, a lot of orphans or a lot of single parent families through in Ghibli films. So it's it's a it looks fantastic again, and it does have this real sense of nostalgia, this sense of tradition. Um, I think it's one that you'll you'll want to try and get hold of, Owen. I think you'll you'll really enjoy that. And then, um, sometime next year, we'll be treated to Miyazaki's final film, The Wind Rises, uh, which appears to bridge the gap between fantasy and nostalgic Ghibli. It's a it's a historical fantasy film. Uh, fictionalised account of the inventor who created the incredible Japanese fighter planes of World War II and there's a sense of it's very much rooted in the real history of the development of these planes um, and set against the backdrop of the, the rise um, and the, the march to to war uh, mm-hmm. in the Second World War but it also has, uh, you know, there is a fantastical element to it I believe the the Guard, the, the inventor, the protagonist at the centre of the story, has conversations in his dreams with other inventors of planes and things like that. And uh, 
it certainly it's already got a bit of a backlash from both the left and the right wing in Japan. <laughs> Uh, the left wing aren't happy that he seemed to be glorifying an inventor of death machines. Uh, the right wing aren't happy um, because during the press tour for this, he came out and said that he he doesn't agree with the current Japanese right wing government's attempts to rewrite their constitution and he should keep his nose out of politics and things like that. So he's he's putting a lot of noses out mm. of joint. Um, one thing I think we can be sure of is it's going to look fantastic. Yeah, I think an interesting thing about Miyazaki, I think his his dad um, owned a munitions factory or ran right. a munitions factory in World War Two. But he himself is, I mean, obviously you can see that through through his work. There's a yeah. there's a lot of anti-war sentiment in there, and he Ex- he refused yeah. to pick up his Oscar for Spirited Away because um, because of the Iraq War. Okay. Um, so he he's this strange conflict. You think about something like Howl's Moving Castle. Um, you know, yeah. their their films very very anti-war, yeah. But their their films again don't shy away from showing any of that. You know, Mononoke. No. Um, there, there's there's war. You know, it's yeah. Four, and, well, well five like the opening fifteen minutes yeah. of Five Lights, the the kind of the fire bombing, mm. uh, the raising to the ground of a, a town is it's horribly shocking. Uh, but um, but it's very interesting because uh, Miyazaki's position on this uh, apparently is yep yeah, these these planes did you know were used in a horrible war uh, a horrible uh and you know pointless loss of life but, but he, he loves planes though, uh, doesn't he I he mean, loves planes yeah. and he says this is these planes are actually one thing that the country can be proud of and and he said the skill and the bravery of the japanese pilots and he's very much trying you know walking a fine line there between kind of glorifying war which obviously if you look at his body of work he's never going to want to glorify war but he has kind of pulled out some positives from there and said that these planes were beautiful and incredible machines uh, and he wants to yeah, he wants to kind of cast a triumphant light on that perhaps. Well, but, um, Studio Ghibli itself is named after an airplane isn't it? Mm, yes. An Italian yeah. airplane which is supposed to be called Ghibli but to the Japanese the G and the H it's, that, does, that G thing doesn't a, exist yeah, they call no. it Ghibli yeah <laughs> But yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, it runs through all of his films. You watch um, Porco Rosso, and that is all about the planes. I mean, that is the make no mistake. That is just a vanity project for Miyazaki to go look at these planes and aren't they beautiful and how they move and everything. Um, <laughs> so I think if nothing else, then The Wind Rises will have some fantastic animation in the planes and detail. And yeah. you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to it now. Yeah, uh, and then they were hoping to um, release. Uh, Takahata's, uh, Takahata's film at, at the same time they're hoping almost a kind of bookend um, they're hoping to release the tale of Princess uh, Kaguya um, but instead Japanese audiences at the moment just getting a preview of that and that has that's his first film since My Neighbours the Yamadas and uh, that's very interesting that he's he's stepping back up to the plate as Miyazaki retires um Okay, so let's just finish up then with a quick look of you know, our favourite films. Uh, Owen, you've already mentioned one of your favourite films. Have you got another one you'd, you'd like to mention? Yep. I, I know, for example, we haven't talked about Ocean Waves yet. I was just about to say, yeah, Ocean Waves is one I think is massively underrated. Um, it was only a TV movie initially, but it's just another one of these about these school kids and their... Um, the, the the relationships they build up with each other, all these friends, and their complicated romantic stories, and it's just it's it's a really sweet film, and um, 
again, plays up on that nostalgic element which I mentioned, which seems to be the hook for me in their films. Jerry? Um, Favourite film? I think just for pure sentimentality, Grave of the Fireflies, because it's still the only film to have ever made me cry. Wow. <laughs> it made me sob for about I, an hour. I imagine it broke <laughs> you for days, yeah. yeah. Absolutely killed me. You know, Just going to see it and thinking... My daughter's just a little tiny bit younger than the girl in this, you know, and, and you can't, and because the world it creates is just so realistic and so immersive, mm. um, you can't help imagining what if, and that's the killer thing in that film is you think, what God no, you don't want to imagine what if, absolutely horrible. Uh, I'm gonna have to. Oh, it is really tough between Grave of the Fireflies for me and My Neighbour Totoro. And I'll, I'll say Totoro, just some of the incredible imagery in that. Um, just the Totoro himself, just such a fantastic <laughs> creation. Um, you know, this big, shuffling, belching, flute-playing beast who lives in a tree. Um, I love him. Uh, and the cat bus... Uh, and and like I say, something that just always strikes me whenever I watch that film, which is quite often, um, there's always just one shot or one scene that I haven't necessarily that hasn't jumped out at me before, and I look at it. It's just such beautiful framing in that film. So yeah, I'll I'll say Totoro there. Um, Speaking of cat bosses, we yes. haven't mentioned they have a museum in Japan, which mm. Miyazaki created himself because yep. he's a lad. <laughs> yeah, and they have a fucking room with a cat bus in. Uh, oh my god! So kids <laughs> can go and play on a cat bus. That is incredibly awesome. <laughs> uh, I also hear they've got short films which are you can only watch if you go to the museum mm. and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I've I've genuinely wanted to visit Tokyo for a long, long time, and that just makes me even more desperate to get over there as well. So. Um, thanks very much, gents. So there we go. Studio Ghibli, new, newly inducted into our corridor of praise. Um, yeah, thanks very much for listening.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Um, so basically, I, was, I you know, I'd heard bits. I, you know, being on film for the odd time, I never really got around to watching them. So I thought, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the effort. I'm gonna record, uh, you know, Grave of the Fireflies. I think it was. It was the first one I saw, and it was on. Uh, I, I'll give it a watch, and I ended up watching it, and it just absolutely blew me away. Um, I mean, it's a it's a stunning film, absolutely fantastic bit of filmmaking, and um, I think I watched that, and then shortly afterwards, uh, my neighbour Totoro was on as well, so I watched that, um, which was I didn't realise at the time, but they came kind of came out as a double bill, uh, those yeah. two films initially, um, a year before I was born. Um, <laughs> you young bastard! Yeah, and that. The kind of combination is that they're very different films, but they're very similar as well, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get onto later. Yes. But that kind of drew me in and sort of the two sides to that world and the possibilities to it. And, and I'm a massive Pixar fan, uh, more Pixar than, than Disney. And I think that we will probably talk about the similarities between all three of the studios, really, in terms of being the most successful animation studios um, in cinema. And. Mm-hmm. There's some very similar things going on with Ghibli, but Ghibli is, again, it's, it seems more adult, but then there's there's something wonderful about it as well, something so childlike about all their films, um, and a lot of that's down to Miyazaki and Takahata. They have a brilliant skill, uh, and it's just so lovingly made and drawn, and it really drew me in, and the stories... I mean, I'm not a big buff of Japanese culture or anything like that, but the stories always drew me in, and and there's ways of, of understanding and more universal themes that, you know, make up the fact that you will miss out on some of this stuff. I'm sure there's loads of stuff I don't pick up on, but they're just fantastic. And they, they Some of them are brutally, horribly sad, like Grave of the Fireflies, yet strangely uplifting at the same time. And My Name of Totoro is possibly the happiest, just the most uplifting, happy film that ever, <laughs> anyone's ever made. It's wonderful. Yeah. Although, uh, yeah. earlier today, Owen shared a link... Uh, with us on Twitter, we retweeted on the thing, which is certainly an alternative take on on Totoro. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll we'll put a link to that in in the blurb for the podcast here as well. You can go back and look at the Fail Critics timeline. But it, yeah, we'll come on to that because well, talking about how Studio Ghibli formed, they formed after the success of uh, a film called Nausicaa, uh, Valley of the Wind, which was the first major collaboration between. Miyazaki and, as you said, Takahata, and also producer Toshio Suzuki. Now, Castle in the Sky was the first release. Have either of you seen Castle in the Sky? I haven't, no. It's one, no, of, the, no. one of the gaps. No, no. Um, 
And to be honest, I think let's just jump straight into that. You've already mentioned it. Their first major impact in the cinematic world, double bill release of My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies. Um, Owen, your thoughts on these two? Firstly, as a double bill, Mm -hmm. um, but also kind of how they set that standard for, you know, they really laid down a marker for Ghibli. They did, yeah. I mean, they were both made by Ghibli. Um, it's worth pointing out they were made by freelance um, animators as well, and people that mm. were just hired in different studios. Even Miyazaki it was kind of released a... through the studio name, wasn't exactly, it? Exactly, but it was yeah. it was a project that um, Miyazaki and Suzuki actually worked on to get both films out and made at the same time. Um, it's a really interesting story to it as well. If, it's worth um, if you've got like the because the Studio Ghibli DVDs. Um, there's a series um, where they they're all part of the same series. Um, there's a, an extra on the Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind DVD, which goes into detail actually about all of their releases up to um, Howl's Moving Castle, which is really interesting. It gives a really interesting insight, particularly into these two films and um, just the sheer effort that had to be expended in getting these two out at the same time, um, because apparently they wanted to make a post-war. Japanese story um, and the distributors were just saying no you can't do that so they said well we'll make we want to make Grave of the Fireflies we'll make My Neighbor Totoro as well which is also a post-Japanese story uh, post-Japanese post-war Japanese story but with a slightly more uplifting (laughs) take on on, Mm. on the whole thing so the the project became like this this double um, feature really uh, which is really interesting, but the, the the films themselves couldn't be more different. I don't think one is really. Uh, I, I wouldn't say Grave of the Fireflies is a more realistic um, interpretation, but only because I think that Ghibli, um, Ghibli tried to make uh, My Neighbor Totoro into this kind of fantasy story, mm. which is actually from that article that you mentioned um, that I found earlier today. Mm. It's it's kind of like a Pan's Labyrinth story, almost. Yeah. You know, these kids that, yeah. that are escaping through um, fantasy and, you know, these, these weird creatures that they come across. And three creatures, actually, that become really big, important figures for Ghibli. You know, you've got yeah. the cat bus, which is quite iconic for them. Um, yeah. The dust bunnies. I'm desperate to get hold of a cat bus. <laughs> yeah. Like, a toy. I'm desperate for one. Looks amazing. And the uh, yeah, the dust bunnies. You know, when they're all running yeah. around the house and shouting into the rooms to scare them off and stuff. They're really popular and featuring other films as well. I think they're in Spirited Away. Um, and you've also got obviously Totoro and his two little chums. Who, uh, you know, that's that's the image that most people hold now of. Of Studio Ghibli, it's on the blue screen that comes up at the start of all their films. Is it just he's draw- their he's their lucky mascot? He's their mascot, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, I, I had the great fortune to actually, to go and see this as a double bill very recently in the way that it was originally screened. I, I got to take my daughter along, my daughter who's not yet three, to, along to see Totoro, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. She'd already seen it before. Ter- terrible etiquette in the cinema. She just kept shouting out bits that were coming out, <laughs> up and stuff like that. Really bad. Yeah, you know, uh, I did feel a little bit. Oh no, no, don't tell them that Totoro's coming. Other kids might not know about that. But uh, yeah, you know, I didn't really care to be honest. It's my daughter. I was taking her to see a hipster world language, <laughs> <laughs> world cinema film. Um, and yeah, and I, I 
I think Totoro is an absolutely wonderful story. It, it looks beautiful, and the, for me, some of the important thing is the animation doesn't just look beautiful, which it does. Uh, and there's you know still a lot of hand drawn animation going on there. Um, it's actually some of the framing, some of the shots are properly directed. You know, there's mm. some beautiful. You could take just random screenshots from that film. And they would just be beautiful cinematic images. And that's something I think that does run through uh, their work. But Grave of the Fireflies, just wow, what, what an emotional punch in the guts that film is. Absolutely. And, and just utterly bizarre to see those two films at the same time. But when you see them put directly up against each other, you do start to see those um, similarities mm. about uh, you know loss of innocence, um, young people trying to hide away from the horrors of the real world, be that the the end of the Second World War or a mum potentially dying, you know, that they withdraw into their own worlds which have their own kind of dangers and um absolute both absolutely wonderful films. Uh and it's no wonder that the studio suddenly got a lot of interest in it. Followed it up the next year with Ghibli's first real box office triumph, which was Kiki's Delivery Service. Um, have either of you two seen Kiki's? I've not actually managed to quite get round to it. Um, I yeah. may have it's a done it. I just ago, might not remember. Oh, well. <laughs> it was, um, it was uh, Japan's highest grossing film the year it came out, so it was the first real big one. There. Again, uh, really kind of capitalising on that fantasy idea. And I think Jerry was talking earlier about not necessarily being a uh, a buff on all things Japanese. But there is definitely, uh, there's a wonderful, uh, there's a wonderful feeling I get from Japanese films. And I get it from Japanese horror films as well. And that they are, um, they have this real spiritual, almost superstitious quality, despite on the, on the surface being quite a forward, progressive, westernised in a way, um, culture as well and it's just this culture clash between progression and trying to hold on to the past and magic and things like that there is, that a, there is a sense in all their films and you know I, I'm not going to make a sweeping generalisation this is a you know an innately Japanese thing but it, it's definitely something that comes through all the time is that there is this the magical world and the fantastical are very very close to normal reality and they, you know mm. what they look at is the interplay between that and this, as you say, the spiritual side of things, and I know it, it, it kind of goes back to, um, you know, Japanese spiritual beliefs around nature and things. But there, there's mm. a real interaction, and, and that being just bubbling under the surface and just, you know, coming out that you don't get a lot in in a Western viewpoint. You know, no. it's not a common thing. And I think that's yeah. Again, I think that's why Japanese horror films work so well and have that very unique viewpoint. And I think that you get that with, with Ghibli films. Now, the following period after Kiki's Delivery Service really set Ghibli on the map, um, at least domestically, with Only Yesterday, uh, Porco Rosso, Pompoco, and Whisper of the Heart all following Kiki's success in becoming the highest grossing domestically in each of the years they were released. Now, Owen, you've already spoken uh, on another podcast about how Whisper of the Heart is your favourite Ghibli film to date. Mm-hmm. Um, briefly, can you just tell us, what is it about this film that you love so much and just because i'll be honest it's one of the ones that hadn't really come into my sphere uh sure. it's it, you know it's not 
up it's not one of the ones which is in the imdb top 250 it's not one of the kind of pixar distributed ones so what is it about this film that really you know caught your imagination um well i think it's it's probably because it's quite different to a lot of the um well i say it's quite different ghibli seem to have one of two styles with their films you either get the really um jerry's already talked about the sort of fantastical element to it you know these big fantasy stories with lots of magic and weird creatures and things in it and they, then you also get the films which are quite sort of nostalgic and based around um, usually young girls and, and in their childhood or as they're just becoming um, adults and aware of, of things around them and stuff like that. Whisper of the Heart is just this story of a 14-year-old girl who um, she doesn't really know what she's going to do with her life. She sort of flirts around with doing... Um, she likes reading, so she she thinks maybe she could become a writer. She likes writing stupid, goofy lyrics to songs to show her friends and stuff. So she's you know she does a bit of singing in it. So she's just at that point in her life, which I think captures it's it's the point where everybody has been. I think where you're whether you know whether you're 14 and yourself at the time when it happened to you, or whether you you were a bit older or younger even, where you just think, what do I want to do with my life? And then it goes on this journey um, of Shizuki. And or Shizuku, sorry, as she um, discovers herself, really, and it, it's just so, so sweet and so romanticised vision of like childhood, and I just I fell in love with it. I thought it was a, a, an incredible um, film, really, and I love that kind of whimsical, nostalgic feel to the films like that. So like my Only Yesterday, I thought was brilliant as well. I really liked Only Yesterday, and mm. I prefer those kind of things more to um, like Nausicaa, which was quite a big well it's what i would think of like a typical um anime kind of story to nausicaa mm-hmm. and even the earlier stuff that that uh, miyazaki did like um the castle of cagliostro mm. which is just a kind of general anime story of you know a hero and he saves a girl and stuff yeah. like that um interestingly i mean i've not seen the film i've not i've not seen uh, whisper of the heart but it was the only film that was directed by guy called, oh, sorry for my pronunciation, Yoshifumi Kondo, mm-hmm. um, who was supposed to be the successor to Miyazaki and Takahata, um, and this was his first directed film. He was the uh, the animation director for Kiki's, uh, for Only Yesterday, for Princess Mononoke, I'm sure for other things as well. Um, and he unfortunately died very suddenly of an aneurysm, um, which they put down to working excessively basically wow. uh, and and one of the things you need to say about this the studio is that they they work absolutely insanely hard i mean miyazaki is, is in his 70s and he's saying you know i'm he's retiring because he, he can't do 12 to 14 hour days anymore and he, he i can't do it he'd, he'd quite like to have saturdays off i mean this is what, what these yeah. people are like. they, they go balls to the wall and that's i mean it shows in the work mm. but um Kondo died from this, and I think it was excess work. It's the first time that Miyazaki retired. He's retired several times, um, but I think it was the first time was he, he announced it after that because he thought that, yeah, I can see that happening to me. I don't want that at all. You know, he'd seen someone he worked with closely and who he thought was going to be, you know, his replacement die from overwork. So, yeah, pretty sad. That is, but. That is a sad. That's quite a shame as well because he's obviously talented. It's it's such an incredible film, really. Like, yeah. Whisper of the Heart is by far my favourite. By far, uh, he, I mean, he was the artistic director um, 
on Mononoke, and he, he he did a lot of the character design for that, which you know I'm sure we'll we'll cover now. But mm. you know the character design in Mononoke is absolutely unreal. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Well, coming on to that, yeah. After after that kind of burst of films, uh, in 1996, Ghibli agreed a deal with Disney to distribute their films to a worldwide audience, and so their work was opened up to a new international. Uh, fan base. Uh, first film of this deal was 1997's Pr- Princess Mononoke, and brilliantly, uh, Ghibli insisted on a no cuts deal uh, after the American edit of Nausicaa was heavily cut for an international audience. And I don't quite know how he was involved, but somehow Harvey Weinstein uh, was involved in the discussions about uh, Mononoke's marketing in America. He suggested it have some cuts and some edits to make it more palatable for American audience. And the studio sent him a genuine Japanese sword simply inscribed with two words, no cuts, which <laughs> I thought was <laughs> kind of nice and a threat. I think it was Miyazaki <laughs> himself who did that, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think it was. And, yeah, I admire that. Yeah, one of the few people to just stand up to Harvey Weinstein yeah, in fair to him. ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, what I will say is uh, Mononoke isn't... Not my favourite of the Ghibli works. I felt it was a little bit overlong in places. And actually, there were some things... We were talking earlier about the Japanese culture, the themes. Um, I I think this is one of those films where perhaps a little too much of it on my first viewing went over my head. Um, What are your guys' thoughts on it? I I, I loved it. Mm. Go on. Yeah. I was just going to say, I didn't, I didn't love it either. I'm pre- I'm feel the same way James does about it, I think. But I thought it's probably their best-looking film, I think, in terms of animation. Stuff about, you know, the the, the forest thing, the um, uh, the sort of avatar of the forest. I forgot what it's called, you know. Mm. But that is just... It, that just looks incredible. I mean, that's one of the, the most amazing creatures they've created in terms of the way it looks, anyway. Yeah. Stunning. Yeah, I mean, it... it... It's kind of visually, it just blows you away, and I think mm. that comes through in a lot of their work as well. Um, but it, it was, it's, it's a period piece, isn't it? Really, let's be honest. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a sort of medieval Japanese uh, period drama. Um, yeah. it's, it's pretty crazy, but it's, it's very much a criticism, like a lot of their work is, to be honest. Um, it's very much a criticism of, of sort of modern industrialism. Yeah. Um, and you know supporting nature and you know that comes through yeah. in Spirited Away it comes through in uh, Howl's Moving Castle it, it, it's yeah. a common theme for them but yeah. this is just a well, brilliant I, I, way of showing it to be honest I, what I quite like is they've got that steampunk kind of feel through a lot yeah. of them so when technology does encroach it's this fantastical steampunk style technology and it's only in their really kind of rooted in realism films that you get something approaching kind of normal modern technology and I, d- I do like that and it, it does seem to be a, a bit of a, a theme running through their films um my i think one of the problems with mononoke for me as well is i watched the dubbed version of that because uh, that was the one that i ended up recording and i do feel again it lost a little bit in translation and I, i've heard that the direct subtitle translation does actually give you a little bit more of what's going on so maybe there was an issue there it, should I be watching all of these films where possible subtitled? Yeah, because there, there is a difference. Usually for animation, you don't. You it's not like when a film is dubbed and you ju- it just really throws you because the voices don't match the lips and stuff like that. With animation, you can blur that a little bit and get away with that. But um, 
yeah, it, is the voice act, is the Japanese voice acting actually something that brings something else to the play, and I should be striving to listen to it in in its original language? I think so. I mean, I've I've watched um, a couple of the films multiple times, once in each, and there's definitely the you know the, the subtitle version is a bit meatier. It's a bit better, you know. Yeah. Although they do get some great voice actors in for it. Yeah. You know, they've got some. Oh really yeah, don't get me wrong. That. Yeah. Yeah. There's you know, some, Christian there's Bale in Hell's Moving and all that stuff. Yeah. Although Christian Bale in Hell's Moving Castle did do a little bit of a Batman voice he at did. one point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, also in Hell's Moving Castle, uh, Billy Crystal as mm. Calcifer mm. was a really lovely bit of. And in fact, that I think is where you get a bit of the. Um, the Pixar influence, isn't it? Yeah. You get yeah. some of the great Pixar voice talent. So at least they are trying with the voice talent. But still, yeah, I, I, what I do, I did see Grave of the Fireflies in its original Japanese language format, and I do that. Mm. I think made it even more powerful because yeah. you are listening to a young Japanese girl and a young Japanese boy, and you hear the inflections and the emotions. Yeah. Um, because there has been a little tendency, because a lot of the um, a lot of the films obviously feature young people, and the American tendency with the uh, the dub is to sometimes get kind of Disney young Disney's like uh, one of the Jonas Brothers, for example, and Dakota uh, Fanning and people Dakota like Fanning and, and her younger sister in Toto, and obviously Dakota Fanning actually very good actress um but a few of the other ones that they seem to have picked up on are just like young famous people and it i think it yeah. definitely loses something there although um, um you know whisper of the heart that i keep going on about yeah i saw that with it was dubbed and i thought that was you know still incredible i mean i don't know how it would compare because a lot of some yeah. part of whisper of the heart as well is about sort of the music so some of it doesn't really need to be mm-hmm. in subtitles yeah. but you know with other things that um you know, Toast Row is one that you, you've just mentioned. I think that works a lot better in subtitles. So yeah, you know. okay, that's interesting because I've pretty mu- I've seen the subtitled version once and I've seen the dubbed version about fifty times because <laughs> my daughter likes it, yeah. and she'd throw an absolute tantrum if words started appearing along the bottom. Well, I'm sure, she'd... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Now, after Monoki came uh, my neighbours, the Yamadas. Mm-hmm. Um, have either of you seen that? Yeah, got it recorded. I haven't watched it yet. One of the la- it's one of the last ones until next year. That uh, it's the last one that Takahata uh, directed. Owen, what, what's what's it like? It's like a sketch show almost about this family. <laughs> yeah, it's just a series of like funny sketches. Um, it's got the odd one that's kind of sentimental and stuff, but it's just about this this family who. Um, uh, it, I suppose the closest thing to it resembles is like The Simpsons, really. It's okay. just a small family of um, two kids, two adults, and a grandma, and they all live in this house and get up to different things, and it's funny. Some of the well, some of the sketches are really, really good, and um, the animation in it is completely different to any of the other Ghibli films. I mean, it all looks like um, uh, it's just all it all looks like it's on just a flick book, you know, just bits of paper, Ooh. and just it's really cute and oh, okay. yeah, quite funny. Okay, oh, that's interesting. Um, then in 2001 came, I think, the international breakthrough for the studio in the shape of Spirited Away. Tale of a young girl who gets trapped in the spirit world with her parents having been turned into pigs. 
Uh, it won the Oscar for Best Animated Film in 2003, and it is the first film ever to earn over $200 million in box office before its US opening. Mm. Uh, absolutely huge in Japan, uh, obviously, but then became quite a, a worldwide hit, although it did have a troubled distribution from Disney. Um, they barely marketed it at all. Uh, and apparently, A lot of people said that Disney straight-to-video films get more coverage than this did uh, for its cinematic release, uh, for its theatrical release. And apparently this was seen as a response to Ghibli's insistence that they retain merchandising rights for all of their characters. Um, on a more positive note, Pixar's John Lasseter is apparently huge fan of this, huge fan of Miyazaki, and he instructed his staff to watch Miyazaki Ghibli films whenever they come up against a story problem, uh, which I thought, you know, again, it's that link between Pixar, Disney, and Ghibli. Is the people at the top recognise that... Um, there's some fantastic storytelling going on there. So, Spirited Away, I'll be honest, Spirited Away is one of my absolute favourites. I know it's a really obvious favourite in the sense that it's probably their, their their most commercially successful, certainly outside of Japan. But it it took a little while to get going for me. I thought it was an odd setup to a story. But once it once it did, I, I love the world it created. Little touches of humour around, you know. There's a very odd sense of humour running throughout this film. The, the idea that there's this this bathhouse for the spirits, you know, when it gets to night, they go to a bathhouse. Um, crazy witch living at the top, and um, it, it's just full of lovely little vignettes. And the story itself, you know, of that young girl struggling. A, a corruptible adult world struggling to find her own identity I, I fell in love with this film I, I love Spirit Away and I think you're right that the world that it creates you know the, the, the bathhouse when it first is revealed at night time and all the spirits start coming out and there's all these crazy creatures and it's, you just it's in really really engrossing and fascinating viewing you know yeah. you can't watch that and not just think wow uh, this is this is fucking great this is interesting yeah, and well, just the imagination there. Yeah, I know. Yeah, uh, Owen's the I man. I was keeping quiet. Heart, <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah, yeah, so I know. I'll, I'll let you two duke this one out. Well, I think the thing that just before Owen has his little say here, I think the thing that I love about Spirited Away is, you know, you said the opening is a bit strange. I actually love the fact that there's this. There was a re- it really took me back to my childhood, and I think this is something that that they do so well, and it's a similar thing that Pixar do as well. Is there was a sense when you were a kid that you know you, there was these things that you you read about or you heard about these fantastical things like ghosts and that they were just around the corner you know just behind that that little dark uh, wooded area or whatever that, that might be lurking and and the idea that they just they stop off and take this you know a bit of a wrong turn or whatever mm. and they go and explore this little thing and it's the idea that you just stumble upon this entire magical fantastical world that's it's just so amazing and that is kind of you know you go through your childhood thinking that. You know, there's amazing, incredible things just around the corner, just lurking out of sight, just that you can't quite touch. And it, it's that whole feeling and that sensation. They just encapsulate that brilliantly and put it on the screen. And it's it's just, ah, it's a wonderful film. I don't know how Owen is going to possibly try and take it down. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you, Owen. Um, well, uh, you know, I think that's, they're all fair points that you're making, but they didn't... They weren't there for me, really, when I watched it. The first time I saw it was, um, uh, well, a bit of background. My wife's dad is from Hong Kong. My father-in-law's from Hong Kong. 
he I think it was whenever this came out on DVD, sort of 2002 or whatever it was, he goes back home for Christmas. He brought it, these pile of DVDs back with him and says, watch Spirited Away, um, because it's a really big film over there at the minute. We put it on DVD. My wife, who's into animation and stuff anyway, she, she loved it. She thought it was amazing. I just sat there a bit bored, thinking it was a bit like a Japanese Disney film, and I wasn't that impressed by it but at the same time it's one of those films that i've rewatched it quite a few times since um and every time i've just thought it's there's just something about the sort of the magical side of ghibli films that doesn't really appeal to me i just think sometimes they just go out the way to be a bit strange and a bit weird um and spirited away is full of things that are just strange and a bit weird um and i think this yeah. the story that ties all the strange and weird bits together it doesn't. I don't. I don't like the character in it. The girl. She. I just <laughs> don't coming out now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't like it. I think this. The this. The animation in it again. It is just mind blowing. You just think that the the amount of blood, sweat, and tears that have been spent into animating stuff like the dragon, which looks incredible, and the flying bits of paper and stuff, and you just think, okay, a lot of love has gone into this and I can appreciate it, but it's not. Re- it didn't really connect with me on an emotional level. And I, It's been the same way for, for Princess Mononoke did the same, but I was a bit more, mm. bit more blown away by the animation in that one. And Speaking I just think, of, of the love, by the way, it's um, the only best animated film Oscar winner to be traditionally animated. Mm. Well, oh. I know it's only, it's a fairly young award, you know, it was kind of yeah. added for Shrek, wasn't it, then? Yeah. Monsters Inc. But um, you know, in terms of how animation is done now, it's all mm. you know, barring the sort of the exceptions of things like um, Fantastic Mr. Fox and Corpse Bride and yeah. mm. Wallace and Gromit. It's very much computer generated, mm. yeah. and the fact that they create this amazing, even Owen's admitting that they create this amazing visual thing without recourse to the modern sort of ways of doing things. You know, yeah. I mean, they used a digital process, don't get me wrong, but mm. it, it was, you know, a traditional animation in, in that sense. Yeah, it yeah. just gives you RSI watching it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the hours they put into yeah. that film. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then for the rest of that decade, uh, Ghibli continued to produce critically acclaimed, commercially successful animations. Uh, How's Moving Castle, for example, I, I watched for the first time the other night. And again, that that sense of building a world, just this utterly incredible and imaginative world, full of really lovely touches. Uh, you know, a house where you just switch the doors and it takes you to different doors. And yeah, you know, I I really really enjoyed House Moving Castle. Owen kind of gave me a heads up mm. and said that he liked it until the last half hour. I loved it until the last half hour. The last 20 minutes or so did kind of go over my head a little bit, and I wasn't quite sure what was going on there. Um, yeah, I think it's one Jerry. of the weaker films, actually, and it's it's very okay. popular, but I, yeah, it's it's good, it's all right, but I think, you know, it's kind of... The best, the best thing I can compare it to is it's a bit like Brave or The Incredibles, in that mm. it's mm. good. And if anybody else did it, you'd probably be like, wow. But because, it, because of their other standards, it's it's just all right. Yeah. Well, you did oh, okay. pick two of my favourite Pixar's there. But, um... <laughs> well. <laughs> You're the odd I'm one, though. Apparently yeah. the odd one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Ponyo, uh, which is a kind of almost, well, not quite, but it seemed to me like their take on 
the Little Mermaid. Uh, Ponyo was a lovely film, actually. Did you watch the um, English dub? Uh, I did watch the English dub, unfortunately. I really did not get on with the English dub of Ponyo with Liam Neeson. Uh, okay. Yeah, the Liam Neeson thing was a little bit... It just made me think of Taken immediately. Mm. At one point, his kid's gone, and I'm like... Yeah. And in my head, immediately, I started thinking, yeah, he's got a certain skill set. Um, <laughs> he, will, he will find you and he will kill you. And then, yeah, for, it, for about 20 minutes after that, I had to try and get back into the idea that it wasn't yeah. Taken the Little Mermaid years or something like that. So, yeah, the Liam Neeson... Because it really is... It's an odd voice for his, that just the way his character looks and everything like that. It's a, it's a bizarre casting choice yeah. in a sense, and it felt a little bit odd. Uh, but again, it looks fantastic. It's a lovely, sweet story as well. I think. Uh, I mean, I, I know I always rave about it, but I think this is Ponyo, and is kind of emblematic of the fact that they're on a bit of a decline, a bit like Pixar. Mm. It's good. It's not great. Same with Howl's Moving Castle. I know Howl's Moving Castle is very, very popular, but. You know, we'll move on to Arietti as well. They're they're good films without ever reaching the heights that they did, sort of in that that period from Grave of the Fireflies up to Spirited yeah, Away. Yeah. That was kind of their peak. Well, let's, let's pick up on Arietti then, because uh, I know Owen's seen that. I've not got round to seeing it, and I'll be honest, just the fact that it's a Japanese retelling of The Borrowers, I'm not in a huge rush to see it. Is that is that wise? Yeah, I mean, um, again, it, it does look good. Uh, without ever being spectacular so even your you know films that i've mentioned that um i thought looked good but didn't have a great story ariette is just a very simple story very simply told with you know good but not brilliant animation in it uh, it's a yeah. shame really because there's, there's the option um at points where you think okay so this is the bit where it's just gonna blow you away with something special and it just i mean it fizzles out in the end to nothing it's a shame. Yeah, they do some great stuff with scale, um, you know, visually. Mm. But I think it's kind of it's more of a slow burner of a film, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's not a you know a great in the way that Spirited Away or Mononoke give you that sort of instant gratification of mm. the stunningness as well as the story. Mm. It's a bit more of a. I, I don't think it matched it quite quite yeah. what they needed to do, but it's all right. It's an odd film for them to have done as well, I think. Yeah, it's a strange just, choice. It doesn't fit in their, you know, catalogue. It's not like, um, like I said when, before, with it's not a nostalgic story. It's not mm. a, this magical fantasy story. It's not even like a vanity project like Porco Rosso was. It's just mm. this this retelling of a classic Western story. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, you said that's, it's a Western story. Uh, and Howl's Moving Castle was based on a novel by an English author as well. And maybe this sense that they've started taking non-Japanese source material uh, has diluted a little bit of what was, you know, their mm. charm um, and, and what made them stand out. And hopefully um, the the direction they've taken in the last few years is rectifying that slightly because the latest Ghibli film to be released um, certainly over here in terms of uh, being subtitled and dubbed for an English language audience was from up on Poppy Hill which I went to see earlier this year uh, directed by Miyazaki's son Goro Um, and this is it's definitely in Owen's sphere Mm -hmm. of uh, films. It's set in the run-up to the Tokyo Olympics, 
Um, so we're just a little bit past post-war Japan now. Uh, and it's a Japan which is struggling for identity that is part of it wants to hold on to its traditional past. Part of it is really progressive and everything is, that is new and shiny is better. Uh, and it's um, based around a, a young girl uh, and a boy at school who decide to try and keep their ramshackle clubhouse open. Um, and it's a clubhouse full of scientists and archaeologists. And it's all these um, students uh, who are studying a load of extracurricular activities. And there's an acting group there. They've got this ramshackle uh, house and it's due to be knocked down to make way for um, preparations for the Tokyo Olympics. And it's, it's quite a... It's quite a cliched story in the sense that it's a group of kids banding together to keep their youth club open, essentially. Mm. But it's a, it's a really nice story about this young girl who um, has lost her father uh, at sea, um, struggling. Again, this, is, this seems to... You know, parental death mm. is a theme that runs through a lot of uh, this. You know, a lot of orphans or a lot of single-parent families through, in Ghibli films. So it's, it's a... It looks fantastic again, and it does have this real sense of nostalgia, this sense of tradition. Um, I think it's one that you'll you'll want to try and get hold of, Owen. I think you'll you'll really enjoy that. And then, um, sometime next year, we'll be treated to Miyazaki's final film, The Wind Rises, uh, which appears to bridge the gap between fantasy and nostalgic Ghibli. It's a it's a historical fantasy film. Uh, fictionalised account of the inventor who created the incredible Japanese fighter planes of World War Two, and there's a sense of it's very much rooted in the real history of the development of these planes um, and set against the backdrop of the, the rise um, and the, the march to, to war uh, mm. in the Second World War. But it also has, uh, you know, there is a fantastical element to it. I believe the the... The, the inventor, the protagonist at the centre of the story, has conversations in his dreams with other inventors of planes and things like that. And uh, it's certainly it's already got a bit of a backlash from both the left and the right wing in Japan. <laughs> uh, the left wing aren't happy that he's seen to be glorifying an inventor of death machines. Uh, the right wing aren't happy um, because during the press tour for this, he came out and said that he he doesn't agree with the current Japanese right-wing government's attempts to rewrite their constitution and he should keep his nose out of politics and things like that. So he's he's putting a lot of noses out mm. of joint. Um, it, one thing I think we can be sure of is it's going to look fantastic. Yeah, I think an interesting thing about Miyazaki, I think his, his dad um, owned a munitions factory or ran right. a munitions factory in World War II, but he himself is... I mean, obviously you can see that through through his work as a... Yeah, there's a lot of anti-war sentiment in there, and he Ex he refused yeah. to pick up his Oscar for Spirited Away because um, because of the Iraq War. Okay. Um, so he he's this strange conflict. You think about something like Howl's Moving Castle, um, mm. you know, yeah. their their films very very anti-war, yeah. But their their films again don't shy away from showing any of that. You know, Mononoke. No. Um, there, there's there's war. You know, it's yeah, well, the opening 15 minutes yeah. of Fireflies, the the kind of the firebombing, mm. uh, the raising to the ground of a, a town is it's horribly shocking. Uh, but um, but it's very interesting because uh, Miyazaki's position on this uh, apparently is, yep, these these planes did, you know, were used in a horrible war, uh, a horrible uh, and 
you know, the pointless loss of life. But, but he, he loves planes, though, doesn't he? I he mean, loves planes. Yeah. And he says this is these planes are actually one thing that the country can be proud of. And, and he said the skill and the bravery of the Japanese pilots. And he's very much trying, you know, walking a fine line there between kind of glorifying war, which obviously if you look at his body of work, he's never going to want to glorify war. But he has kind of pulled out some positives from there and said that these planes were beautiful and incredible machines. Uh, and he wants to, yeah, he wants to kind of, cast a triumphant light on that perhaps. Well, um, Studio Ghibli itself is named after an airplane, isn't it? mm, Yes. An Italian airplane. Which is supposed to be called Ghibli, but to the Japanese, the G and the H, that that G thing doesn't exist, so they call it Ghibli. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, it runs through all of his films. You watch um, Porco Rosso, and that is all about the planes. I mean, that is, make no mistake, that is just a vanity project for Miyazaki to go, look at these planes, and aren't they beautiful, and how they move, and everything. Um, so I think if nothing else then The Wind Rises will have some fantastic animation in the planes and detail and you know I'm looking forward to it now yeah Uh, and then they were hoping to um, release uh, Takahata's film film at at the same time they're hoping almost a kind of bookend Um, they're hoping to release The Tale of Princess uh, Kaguya um, but instead Japanese audiences at the moment just getting a preview of that and that has that's his first film since My Neighbours the Yamadas and that's very interesting that he's he's stepping back up to the plate as Miyazaki retires um okay so let's just finish up then with a quick look of you know our favorite films uh Owen you've already mentioned one of your favorite films have you got another one you'd you'd like to mention I I know for example we haven't talked about Ocean Waves I was just about to say yeah Ocean Waves is one I think is massively underrated um it was only a TV movie initially, but it's just another one of these about these school kids and their um, the, the, the the relationships they build up with each other, all these friends and their complicated romantic stories. And it's just it's uh, it's a really sweet film, and um, again plays up on that nostalgic element which I mentioned, which seems to be the hook for me in their films. Jerry, um, favorite film? I think just for pure sentimentality grow with the fireflies because it's still the only film to have ever made me cry wow <laughs> it made me sob for about I, an hour I imagine it broke <laughs> you for days yeah. yeah absolutely killed me you know just going to see it and thinking my daughter's just a little tiny bit younger than the girl in this you know and, and you can't and because the world it creates is just so realistic and so immersive mm. um, you can't help imagining what if and that's the killer thing in that film is you think what god no you don't want to imagine what if absolutely horrible uh, i'm gonna have to oh, it is really tough between grave of the fireflies for me and my neighbor totoro and I'll, I'll say totoro just some of the incredible imagery in that um just the totoro himself just such a fantastic <laughs> creation um you know this big shuffling belching flute playing beast who lives in a tree um i love him uh and the cat bus uh and and like i say something that just always strikes me whenever i watch that film which is quite often um there's always just one shot or one scene that i haven't necessarily that hasn't jumped out at me before and i look at it it's just such beautiful framing in that film so yeah i'll I'll say totoro there um speaking of cat buses 
We yes. haven't mentioned they have a museum in Japan, which mm. Miyazaki created himself because yeah. he's a lad. <laughs> yeah. And they have a fucking room with a cat bus in. Uh, oh my god! So kids <laughs> can go and play on the cat bus. That is incredibly awesome. I, I also hear they've got short films which are you can only watch if you go to the museum mm. and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I've I've genuinely wanted to visit Tokyo for a long, long time, and that just makes me even more desperate to get over there as well. So, um, thanks very much, gents. So there we go, Studio Ghibli, new newly inducted into our corridor of praise. Um, yeah. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>